Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hager, a senior at the University of Missouri and a member of the AEI Executive Council program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation my classmate, Abby Burtz, and I moderated with AEI's Brent Orell on prison reform and prisoner reentry policy. Before getting started, I wanted to let you know that the AEI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like these and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogues on their campuses. If you want to get involved or to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here is Brent Orell. Well, hello and welcome. I am Abby Burtz, co-chair of the American Enterprise Institute Executive Council here at Mizzou. And I'm Elizabeth Hager, also co-chair of AI's Executive Council at Mizzou. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Brent Orell, American Enterprise Institute Residence Fellow, who focuses on job training, workforce development, and criminal justice reform. Today we're going to focus in on Brent's experience in criminal justice reform in the current state of our justice system. But before we do, Brent, would you mind giving our listeners a bit more insight on your background relating to criminal justice reform and the like? Sure. And it's great being with you all. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you and share some of my thinking on what I regard as one of the most important policy issues. As importantly, a policy issue on which there is kind of bipartisan interest and support for reform, which is unusual in our day and age. So I worked in the federal government for 22 years. And while I was in the federal government, I spent a lot of time working on anti-poverty related programs. In 2001, I was invited to join the Bush administration at the U.S. Department of Labor, where I ran something called the Center for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives there. I didn't know anything about labor. I knew a little bit about the nonprofit sector. I had a lot of interest in poverty. Right after I joined the administration in August of 2001, of course, just a couple of weeks later was September 11th. That really obviously rocked the entire country and rewrote the agenda of the Bush administration. For me, what it did was force me to think more deeply about how we were going to contribute to the effort of building a stronger country in the aftermath of that crisis. And so what I did was I went out into the country and did a lot of traveling, meeting with faith leaders, with community leaders around the country. And this issue of reentry came up over and over and over again. And that's how I got interested in the criminal justice issues. I was sort of awakened to this ongoing sort of slow motion crisis that was going on and continues to go on in communities around the country with hundreds of thousands of people being released from prison every year and many of them going back into prison shortly thereafter. So we designed and set up the first at the Department of Labor, the first of the DOL employment-focused reentry programs, which was a big challenge, a lot of work, but I think something that has really added to our understanding of the challenges that people with criminal records face when they come home from prison. That actually turned into a bipartisan effort on Capitol Hill, which became the Second Chance Act, which passed in 2008 
and pushed through a whole host of reforms and programmatic initiatives to improve the criminal justice system across the board, not just reentry. When I joined AEI about two and a half years ago, I had been engaged in the issue in outside of government for several years after the end of the Bush administration. I came into AEI and I continued to want to want to work in that area. And so I kind of dove back into the more recent research and literature on the topic and found out that despite all of our best efforts in the Bush administration, we really weren't making much progress on figuring out ways of keeping people out of prison. So I convened a working group of leading researchers, scholars, practitioners in the subject matter area. And we met for about a year and a half periodically. We did some meetings together, thinking together, writing together, trying to distill down what some of the key challenges are. And that was published as a volume in January of 2020. So that's that's my background and sort of up to the moment engagement on criminal justice reform issues. I've done a lot of writing on the topic in the last year. If anybody's interested, they can find those articles and papers on uh, the AEI website. All right. Well, thank you for giving us a little bit of, of background. I think the, the conversation surrounding the Second Chance Act is, is something I, I'd like to touch on a little bit more. Not the direction I thought we might go, but I want to touch on it because I think it's important. As far as partnerships to help give these folks a second chance, are those more corporate-based? Are they governmental? What does that look like, in a sense? It's a very interesting question. When we started our project at Department of Labor, the first name that we gave to it was the Second Chance Initiative. We thought that was a compelling idea, like, let's just give people another chance. As we talked with potential employer partners, they weren't all that interested in that idea. What they were interested in is, can you help me find good employees? The second chance is about the social benefit associated with improving outcomes for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. But we went with another idea, which is called Ready for Work, which is really focused on thinking about people with criminal records as actually being assets to the workforce, to the community, we found that employers were a lot more open to that idea than to this idea that they should function as kind of social work entities that were there to do good. They are trying to do good, but they have a bottom line to meet and they need good workers. And so that's what we we ended up going with. And I just think that that's a really important kind of concept to bear in mind as we think about First of all, the need to think of all people as being assets and having value, worth, dignity, and something to contribute, rather than thinking about them as clients, as people who need our charity. They do, but they're also people who have a great deal to offer us. I think that idea is very important. It's something that I've tried to focus on in our subsequent reentry work and criminal justice work, which is really to think about how do we create an environment, an enabling environment that allows people to make a shift in their thinking so that they can engage in being productive members of our communities. You mentioned altering that mentality for people who might have been previously incarcerated so that 
they recognize they can be assets to the communities. What steps do you recommend doing possibly within prison systems so that they're prepared when they are re-entering into society so that they both are able to view themselves as assets and also be prepared for those jobs? It's a really great question. And it was the focal point of the chapter that I wrote in the Rethinking Reentry book is based on what we know about criminal justice programming, which is that not much of it works actually all that well in terms of its what should be its primary goals, which are preventing more crime and more incarceration. What's wrong with the overarching approach and what should we do about it? And so the essay that I wrote, and I'll also add that not only do these programs appear not to work, in many cases, people who take part in them actually end up doing worse than people who don't take part in them. So we really, something's really off in the way that we're approaching this. So there are individual practices that seem to be very beneficial to people who are in prison and are preparing to reenter. One of the practices is something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which goes to this question of how do we alter or support the process of desistance of people giving up the idea that a life of criminal activity is the only life that's available to them. And cognitive behavioral therapy appears to work. What that really points to is that people have agency. They make decisions about their lives. And if they are equipped to make better decisions, they may end up having better outcomes. So what we proposed in the chapter, or what I proposed in the chapter that I wrote, was the establishment of something on an experimental basis within prisons, something called cognitive behavioral communities, where you would have separate areas of the prison, sections of the prison that are devoted to people who want to engage very intentionally in programs of cognitive behavioral therapeutic work that's focused on changing the beliefs and behaviors that sort of fuel criminal activity and that participation under kind of a contract that, you know, you're going to take this seriously, you're going to do the work. If you don't do the work, then you're not going to continue. Under that kind of a contract, if it's completed, when you leave prison, you'd be eligible for a kind of account that you could use to fund your own transition rather than being immediately offloaded to a halfway house or to another organization or institution that you would have some resources to be able to put toward whatever it is that you think you most need in order to successfully navigate reentry. And we did that because what I believe we see among people who are in prison is that prison is just the endpoint of an entire lifetime of kind of custodial care by various agencies of the government and a loss of personal agency and a sense of control over their own lives. And what we want to do it through, the, through the cognitive behavioral therapy and through the reentry account that I talked about is to rebuild or to build for the first time, perhaps, that capacity for people to own their own lives, make their own decisions, and support that through coaching, through counseling, through people who will walk along with people who are returning from prison to support them, but that the primary responsibility is theirs. 
So this would be a real departure from the way that we typically do prisoner reentry programming, which is heavily focused on what government or other institutions are going to do for people and shifting that responsibility to them along with resources to do it. And thereby, hopefully, kind of, like I said, rebuilding the sense of agency and control over, over their lives. What sort of challenges do you foresee in shifting this approach? So I think there are a number of challenges. And as I said, the proposal for this is really to do it on an experimental basis. I honestly, I don't know if this will be any better than anything else that we've tried. I just know that everything else that we've tried has either not succeeded or made the situation worse. So we need to think outside the box. In terms of the practical challenges, I think that you, the most important one is that you really need buy-in from the top down into trying this. You need a governor who says, yes, I'm willing to exert kind of the leadership that's required in order to try to make this happen. I think you need a prison system, individual prison or correctional facility in which you've got good management and leadership that is willing to do the very hard work that that they would be asked to do. And I think you need buy-in from the correctional officers and all of the other prison staff to create this environment within the, the therapeutic communities that really does take people out of what is typically a very unhealthy prison environment, put them in to a different environment, and then have everybody in that environment, both the prison staff and the inmates, fully immersed in these principles of change that we're talking about. It needs to be intensive, and it needs to be a 360-degree experience that you're never really out of it and that everybody is on the same page, pointing in the same direction in order to get there. So these are all kind of leadership questions and commitment questions that would be significant challenges, I think. When I talk about this in front of audiences, the other big challenge is getting past this idea that prison is only for punishment. Unfortunately, that's sort of the American way when it comes to prisons, that you know, if you commit a crime that's serious enough for you to be imprisoned, you are a menace and you need to be punished until you change your mind. And what I'm suggesting is that maybe, we don't know, but we've got a pretty long track record of that not working and maybe we should try something different. And then these reentry accounts that I talk about are very difficult politically to kind of get over the top on. I, you know, to say to the public, what we want you to do is provide, say, $5,000 to somebody who is leaving prison after having committed a crime when they don't have the, feel like they have the resources to get their own children through college or you know, meet their own needs. Why should somebody, why should the public take hard-earned tax dollars and put it into an effort like that to benefit people who have committed crimes? I get that sentiment, but I don't think, I think we end up spending a lot more money to the tune of twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, keeping people behind jail, behind bars. So this may be a way of actually saving money, being more responsible with taxpayer dollars than we have been in the past. Those are what I see as kind of the big challenges in getting support behind an idea like this. That makes sense. It's it's definitely a challenge. 
on that note of re-entry, I recently read an advertorial, which is paid advertising content from Netflix regarding their Orange is the New Black series. With that, they, they mentioned that former inmates must relearn things like eating at a leisurely pace when they're not being timed or sleeping for longer stretches, unpunctuated by roll calls. Where does adding a more real-life simulation of having that, that decision-making power over how long you eat lunch or what time you get up in the morning to help aid that re-entry process? Yeah, so it's a great illustration of what I was talking about earlier in terms of restoring agency. Like I said, people wind up in prison as an endpoint to a much longer process. They probably have been in trouble in school. They've been in trouble. They've got families that have been in trouble. There have been institutions trying to intervene to improve their lives over a very long period. And prison is kind of a social temper tantrum for society. It's like, we are done with you. You know, we want, we want you to go away because you're just too much trouble to have around. But then when you come back, we don't, we don't necessarily have the support in play. Well, not only that, but then you take these people who have been, you know, sort of managed and interfered with and government has been in their business their whole lives. And then you put them in prison, which is the most regimented environment, except for probably the military that you can imagine. Right. And you wonder, you wonder why at the end of that, period of incarceration that people are unable to make decisions for themselves, right? They never had that before they went to prison, and then they're put in a place where decision-making is completely like removed as a daily task. You're told when to get up, you're told when to eat, you're told when to exercise, you're told when to bathe, you're told everything is structured, and you don't get to make decisions when you're in prison. So, Again, as an experiment, I'm not suggesting that we sort of overturn the entire criminal justice system and do it my way because I'm a conservative. I don't really believe in revolutions. But I think as an experiment, we're trying to see if a different kind of approach that created an environment inside the prison that's more like life outside the prison, you know, like where you do have to manage your own schedule. You do have to, you know, take responsibility for all these little decisions. I mean, how many decisions have you had to make today that only you can make and nobody else can make for you? You have to decide what to eat when you get up in the morning. Am I going to shower today? What kind of work do I have to get done today? How am I going to prioritize that? That's so natural for us that we don't really even know that we're thinking about it, right? It's second nature. But that's all been sort of withdrawn from people who are in prison. And I think that's a mistake. If we want them better able to function outside of prison, then we have to pay more attention to what they're doing while they're in prison. Do you see private charity having a role in this re-entry process, a new approach to the prison system as a whole, or do you think it would be a primarily governmental-run program? No, I definitely think, I mean, like I said before, I. While I was in government, my main focus was on how do we support private and religious institutions in doing the work, some of this high-touch kind of work that needs to be done among people who are struggling with various issues relating to poverty. Prison reentry is one of those things. So I take a very high view of what private organizations do 
charitable organizations do in relationship to a whole bunch of different poverty issues. And I, I think they do need to be involved. The beauty of the voucher or the, the reentry account that I talked about is that it would create kind of a market for reentry services so that if I come out of prison and I've got this money and I know that I need a place to live and I know that I need job training and I know that I need transportation or mental health and substance abuse supports, if I'm paying for it with my money, I'm going to want to know that I'm getting value for the money that I'm spending. And so I'm going to start asking questions about, well, tell me about your program. What do you do? Does it work? Do you have, can you show me how it works to find something that fits what I need? And then also I'm persuaded that this might be helpful to me rather than sticking people into a series of one size fits all programs. People can kind of design their own pathway. So it goes, again, goes back to the agency question of how do we encourage people to take responsibility for their own lives? So these community-based organizations, religious organizations, private organizations would be there to offer services and to persuade that, yes, we have what you need. We can help you. And then people get a chance to try on their own. I think that the value of failing in life is really dramatically underappreciated. We all need opportunities to make mistakes, to try things so that we can kind of learn about ourselves and what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And that includes people who are coming out of prison with criminal records, probably more so. Absolutely. I think to your point, I just, there's a quote here in in the article I referenced earlier, and it's a transformation from a a modality of punishment to a modality of change. And I think that that's super important in how we treat people while they're in a correctional facility. It might be more so this is a rehabilitation period instead. And it's just that that mind shift. I think it's a really interesting way to look at things. And on the training aspect, you know, you think about the training that happens within prisons right now. And I think of electrical and plumbing and very more on the male dominated spectrum of work. And then you think about the women who are in prison and what's available for them. What do you see as some of the trainings that, that could be modified to help with that, that post-employment opportunities that can be both sides of that, the gender conversation? It's a really great question. I strongly recommend for people who are interested in this topic, there's a Netflix series called College Behind Bars, I think is the name of it. It's about the Bard Prison Initiative, which is run by Bard College. And they actually do kind of four-year baccalaureate degrees with people who are in prison, both men and women. It's fascinating to me. I think you're absolutely right. Prison education training typically focuses on career and technical education, which is fine. For some people, that's great. I think not that many people actually have the talent, interest, ability to do those jobs. I mean, it is not easy to be an electrician. It is not easy to be a plumber. It is hard work to be a good woodworker. It's so difficult that I'm in awe of people who can do that kind of work, right? So why do we assume that people in prison typically have you know less education, less work experience? 
would necessarily be gifted in that area. And my view is that we need an entirely different approach to prison education in which we present a variety, a wide range of options for education that people can react to and say, yeah, that's me. That's what I want. Some people want a college education and some people in prison are prepared for and able to do that level of work and need, I think, need the opportunity to try it. And would be empowered by it. Right, right. And I think it can be really like supportive of this personal transformation work that needs to be done. And you can see this in the Netflix series that I just series that I just described. One of the biggest needs of people who have you know been in prison and have a kind of criminal mindset and expectation that this is normal, a life that is periodically characterized by engaging in criminal activity is something of the norm. I think they are particularly in need of the kind of education that forces reflection. And that's what undergraduate education actually, I think, does well, is that it engages people in some of the bigger questions of life. Why am I here? What's my calling? What's my vocation? What does it mean to live the good life? Those are not questions that you're going to pick up in necessarily in shop class. There are shop classes, teachers in shop classes, I'm sure, that do that. There's a great program in Charleston that's built around integrating the trades with the liberal arts, which I'm fascinated by. But for that segment of the prison population that has the interest, the ability, the desire for that kind of education, you know, in terms of pursuing a degree in history or philosophy or English or cultural studies or anthropology or whatever it is, that maybe wouldn't be such a bad idea from the standpoint of supporting personal transformation to make that available. Because I think it does force people to reflect and to engage in these questions of these bigger questions about the meaning of their lives. I think it also ties into the greater idea of having the agency to decide what you want to do. I know growing up, one of the most challenging things to decide is what do I want to be when I grow up? What career path do I want to have? So really empowering them to have that choice and be able to make that decision will probably also enable them to be more passionate about that post-prison career that they have. And for some, maybe the future, just bouncing off of what Elizabeth said, because that was very similar to what I was going to say as well. But before, I mean, the reason that they were in that situation was because they did, never really had pictured a future for themselves. They hadn't been given those choices. They hadn't, that hadn't been an option. So they never entertained it. And if they get those options, they have the opportunity to entertain that. And it's empowering as a result. And I think that that's a really neat consideration as well. You know, one of the insights that I've come to over the last several years is that whatever you see in terms of problems among people who are incarcerated, they're just sort of exaggerated versions of the problems that everybody encounters all the time. And one of those problems, talking to a college audience, I like always like to emphasize this point, is we often live inside a script of what we should be rather than a script which says, who am I? What am I really gifted to do? What are my core interests? What's the kind of job that I would do for free if I could do it for free? 
what am I really passionate about? I mean, we're, we're very fortunate as Americans to be able to ask questions like that. That's not true in a lot of the rest of the world, but we don't take advantage of that opportunity nearly as much as we should. And so what happens is that people say, well, I need to ask myself, what am I going to do and how am I going to support myself in treating everything as an economic question? Economics are very important. People need to have jobs. They need to work. They need to support themselves. But they also need to do things that satisfy the other sort of emotional and psychological and spiritual needs that they have for self-expression and for the exercise of their gifts. Prisoners are no different than anybody else in that regard, right? They're just people who made bad mistakes and wound up in jail, but they're still people. And they still have all of those same desires that people like you and I and all of our friends and family have to live the 70, 80 years that we have in the most fulfilling way possible, doing the things that we're really interested in doing and thereby giving back to the world. It's not just for us. We don't pursue our passions for ourselves. We pursue our passions because that allows us to give the best of ourselves back to the world. And so, like I said, the problems of prisoners are the problems of everyone, but they just, they're more exaggerated. We get to, they're easier to see among prisoners and among, you know, people who have been convicted of crimes. They're more obvious, but they're the same problems. Well, I think that's a great, great final thought here. I know we're, we're at the end of our time and we really appreciate your contribution. And I know it's it's definitely sparked some new considerations for me in a topic that I'm not well versed on, but know that I've got some more research to do and interest in it now. So again, we really appreciate it, Brent. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. 